this right here is On the Matter of Systems, a tabletop role-playing show where every month your hosts will critically engage with some RPG theory and some RPG design. This is a this is a point one episode, so that's uh, that's the RPG theory element. I'm your co-host B. That's like uh, you know the insect with a stinger, uh, and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host BW. Hello, I'm lovely, and we're gonna have an episode today. Um, we're coming off of uh, 5.2, where we talked Troika by Daniel Sell um, in a sort of OSR game, but focused on fighting fantasy rather than Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not familiar. What's that? Well, would you like to read about 30,000 <laughs> words? <laughs> I would. I, I would. I would and have, in fact, multiple times. Yeah. Well, um, so today we're looking at a historical look at the OSR, a series of, well... It gets complicated here, but uh, a series of blog posts on uh, Simulacrum Exploring OSR Design at osrsimulacrum.blogspot.com. A sort of design blog uh, by Keith Hahn, I believe, is the person's name. Uh, Yes, Hahn. Uh, I'm assuming that's the pronunciation. I did not find anything indicating how his name would be pronounced. They were written... They're written all in 2021. Uh, they started in February, um, and the ones we looked at went from February to March, and there was like a follow-up in December that uh, is part five, and we're not going to talk about part five. Uh, there's complicated reasons for that. We had a lot of discussions, um, but I think the the sort of pithiest way I can say it is because we don't want to. Is that is that fair, BW? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think like if we wanted to say more, I think also just like conceptually, right? The the interesting thing to me about this, the reason why I wanted to choose this of our two options at the end of last last episode was specifically for like really like historical stuff. Basically, we we've kept running into sort of the concept of OSR. Um, mm-hmm. And the first four posts are mostly about kind of getting to the history. And the fifth post is also about is sort of where it's gone from there. Uh, and also it yeah it has some shit in it that sucks uh yeah but but yeah for the most part the first four posts are are really exactly what i was sort of hoping for in some ways from this right which are some kind of just like timelines and and information about osr so those are what we're focusing on yeah um and so i don't really have i didn't really write down a a context section but um because i don't really have much um han's blog the osr or the simulacrum um it introduced itself in 2017 as a blog where he's um, interested in specifically writing a, another retro clone um, called Simulacrum. This, this seems to be sort of a research blog for his own um, entry into the OSR uh, as, a, as a designer. He's got a beta release for Simulacrum up uh, with a, on his featured post. It seems, based on some comments I read, that Hans... Uh, like other, I don't know what his main job is necessarily, but uh, it seems like he does a decent amount of work as a freelancer on BattleTech, um, mm. which is kind of interesting. Mm. Um, this, uh, I think, I came to this series of posts because it got linked on a lot of the like uh, the sort of newsletters that I'm sort of subscribed to. Uh, I think it probably came up on Questing Beast, uh, another OSR focused uh, blogger and YouTuber. Uh, in, in their link roundups, there's, uh, the, there's a couple of like, you know, what's going on in the world of indie tabletop, like weekly or monthly newsletters that I subscribe to. That's probably the biggest one that linked to this. I think other ones did as well. Um, so it kind of, it kind of caused a little bit of a splash, um, in the, in the OSR blog world, at least when it came out in, uh, 2021. 
uh, as it was coming out in 2021. And um, yeah, that's that's basically what I have in terms of in terms of context. Um, I guess now normally I would throw it to you, BW. Do you want to read the broad argument or do you want what do you think? Uh, sure. I mean, I can. So uh, I, I can read what you what you put together. So B put together, I think, a pretty good summary of basically like what is what is sort of the fundamental claim? What is the fundamental purpose of these four posts? Like what is what is Keith Hahn trying to do here? And so the 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 goal here is to give a historical look at what became the OSR. So the claim is from 1974 to about 1984, um, D&D primarily sorted a pretty specific style of play that now we would call sort of like old school play or old school revival or old school renaissance kind of play. So that period, uh, 74 to 84, roughly covers uh, from the launch of original D&D up to around Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, like sort of what people refer to as like one and a half, 1.5 edition, right? And so then after that point, there were sort of uh, additions to rules, changes to rules, changes to assumptions around sort of who the player characters are, and sort of the role of the GM. And all of those changes that were happening after that point uh, shifted the style of D&D, especially in sort of like official modules and official books and everything, shifted it away from what we would now call old school play into kind of what Dungeons and Dragons continued to evolve into beyond second and third, et cetera. Yeah. Is that, you want to say more? <laughs> um, I think that's like, th- that's like the, that is the overall claim of the OSR person. And the goal of these posts is to try and support that claim. I think. Yeah, and I would say that that is specifically the claim that Simulacrum, that Khan is making here. Yes. Um, and that timeline is the timeline that he is building because, you know, I'm not an expert on OSR. I haven't read a ton of other stuff, but I bet other people would point to different inflection points. And he even sort of um, acknowledges this, right? Where, like, he says, you know, some people call OSR just anything pre-third edition or whatever. Um, so he's, like, making sort of more granular claims about what specifically old school or when specifically old school play extends from until and and what rule changes sort of obviate the old school and and bring in the current format. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, I mean I have I have a how do we how do we want to tackle this BW? Do we want to just like get do we want to start by just talking about like the things we found useful here and then maybe going into more granular disputes or should we just put it on the table? <laughs> I, I think we should maybe put some of it on the table and then we should okay. let's end on the more positive note. Let's end uh, talking about the things we found interesting. Cause I, I, there are definitely, there are some things in these posts that we find frustrating for sure. Um, uh-huh. but there are also things in these posts that I think are interesting prompts for thinking even if sometimes they are stated in frustrating ways or whatever, there are some weird rhetorical moves um, for sure. But yeah, why, I mean, why don't we start with the <laughs> with with kind of what our issues are, maybe overall. I mean, so just I I you know under my bullet point where I, I wrote sort of the 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 bones of the the broad argument that we just uh, we just talking through. Um, I wrote, uh, unfortunately, the elusive shift came out in 2020, a year before this, these blog posts were written. Uh, and unfortunately, I've read that. Uh, <laughs> so it it's incredibly hard for me to take a lot of his claims on face, given that a, uh, you know, he, uh, Han describes himself as a historian by trade. 
unfortunately, there was a, 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 a book released by a historian and accessing a ton of primary documents that uh, indicate pretty strongly, at least to me, maybe maybe Han has read The Elusive Shift and has an extremely different read on it, that uh, this old school play, no matter how much he seems to suggest that it was uh, extremely prevalent or, or um, a natural pr- uh, uh, protuberance of, of old school D&D is like just not historically true um that that there were people playing dnd in a, in a million different ways including in the ways that he explicitly thinks of as non-old school throughout this whole time and he kind of couches his claims sometimes and it's like well yeah of course it, people were playing in other ways but this is the old school way and it's just like i don't i think he couches his claims in ways that are um Bad. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I was trying to think of a kinder word. But <laughs> I mean, I, I think there 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 is a there is a fundamental mismatch throughout these posts between what Keith Hunt's claims he is doing and the 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 rhetoric he uses and the prose he uses. And a a, a big part yes. of this is exactly some of the stuff you've just brought up, right? Which is uh from the very first uh post and literally like it's the second paragraph, I think. He is positioning himself as doing a lengthy historical analysis because he is a historian by trade. And so this is true history. And so he he basically starts the post by saying, listen, a lot of people have written stuff about this, but nobody has actually done real history here. And so I'm not going to argue about a theoretical way of playing D&D or role-playing games. I'm just going to do real history. And then proceeds over the course of the four posts to strongly claim over and over again <laughs> that old school style play is is in fact better um and that that is his strong belief while yeah. constantly telling us that he's not actually making that claim um yes at, that's the thing is it is always it always is just like i am i am of course saying that the, i'm not saying that this way is better than that way but this way is better than that way. It's just re- repeatedly. Repeatedly. Yeah, yeah it, it happens constantly. And sometimes it's, uh, sometimes he contradicts himself in a footnote. Sometimes he just literally in the text in a parenthetical immediately after. Um, uh-huh. and <laughs> like, and while that is, while that is frustrating as a rhetorical move, um, I, I also just think it's, it leads to some of my biggest problems reading this, which is like from the beginning, I, I as a reader, just like my hackles were up because like, Almost immediately, he he's starting he's starting to essentially contradict himself, and so I just I just had trouble believing some of the sort of historical claims, or like not believing, but just like it is very clear that you you aren't actually doing the thing that you claimed at the beginning. So like, w- which part of this is the historical analysis versus sort of not? Is it just a question I ended up asking a lot? Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, and and to be clear, I think we both agree. Like, it, I don't think there is any point in which Han here is willful, like willfully misinterpreting something, um, I, uh, in order to advance his own narrative necessarily. Um, and I say willfully there very um, crucially. <laughs> um, I don't think he's ever like fabricating evidence or anything like no, that. No, hundred percent. That is absolutely correct, and that's a great. Point. Uh, the the claim I'm making is not uh, the history here is wrong because I don't I mean I don't know the history right that's why I wanted to read this um, yeah it it is much more that like 
it, it's it's me expressing a wish, which is uh, there's a big part of me that wished I could have sort of, uh, for instance, not had excerpts from some of the modules he mentions in post one, it, not have him interpret them for me sort of in the voice of, quote, an old school player or something. Um, mm-hmm. And instead, if he had just presented the information, right, like the primary sources and said, here's a bunch of so like he he brings up in the first post, he brings up box text in these D&D modules as like one of the things that led towards the abandoning of old school play. And he he presents the text and then he talks through the text and he sort of presents what like the old school person would how they would read this and why they would be frustrated by it, et cetera. Yes. And and there's there's a lot that he brings in there. And to your point, there's a lot uh, like to your earlier point about the Peterson, there's a lot he brings in there that's like old school players do this and that's what old D D was. And like I just think that's a very strong claim that seems to be directly contradicted by information in the Peterson. Yeah, by primary sources. Yeah, <laughs> which, which just ends up sort of, again, kind of confusing the point of like, there's just some really good work of like, like, what are the modules that a person who is interested in this style of play, which did exist, right? It's just one uh-huh. of the many different types of play that were happening. But yeah. like, if you were a person who really wanted that old school style play, like... It would be, it's very interesting to me to go, cool, yeah, like, what are the modules that you would point to and go, this is where we started to feel like, oh, we this isn't really for our play anymore. And I just wish it was a little more of the, like, the, like, history and less of maybe the analysis. <laughs> um, yeah. If that Which makes sense. Which is funny because, yeah, it's it's extremely funny, right? Because, like, that's the, I think that was, the opposite of that is, is both of our takeaways at the time from what i remember talking with you about when we were reading the elusive shift was like kind of the opposite Mm -hmm. it's like it's like okay peterson just keeps being like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it was like okay but like could you contextualize things a little bit yeah Um, well and and so like you have uh so for dear for dear listeners uh you have gone through b and you have actually like re-listened to old game study study buddies around sort of when they were doing their like old school role playing old D&D their tabletop unit tabletop yeah. unit that I couldn't remember what the words they used for it I have not done that I read the Peterson I also read that forge book um <laughs> that they read uh yeah it was, it was a very good bit in the in our episode uh, I hope that's uh-huh. what you're laughing about um it yep <laughs> it was a very good bit uh but I have not gone back and revisited revisited that but even I when I first read this had the Peterson in mind just like is it you're really presenting this as a monolith, Mr. Han. <laughs> and like, uh-huh. my memory is that that is super not at all what Peterson was presenting. Um, and and yeah. to the point you were making, this actually, like these posts really made me appreciate the Peterson. Like the Peter, like Peterson is doing really important work, right? Which is, yep. he is he is gathering information and he is organizing it and he is helping to like put together timelines with clear for like primary sources like it is incredibly good and useful historical work these, yeah these posts uh are not quite that um but they're useful still um absolutely um and, and i and yeah I, I should say like um i shouldn't claim that the, that is exclusively our reaction because that is uh michael lutz and cameron Kunzelman of uh, game study study buddies uh, and the range touch network in general they also uh, touched on sort of the 
the feeling that 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 the elusive shift is really really useful but also could stand to have some theorizing and they have a much better and longer argument about that that you should go listen to because um it's interesting yeah (laughs) i i think i think on my end like the the other big like rhetorical movie thing that i i will point out which i think is more just kind of if you go in and if you have not read these posts and you end up wanting to read these posts, because I do think that these first four posts are like pretty, like if you can get through the rhetorical stuff, like there's some really interesting stuff here and like interesting history, um, specifically from like this OSR perspective. Yes. But uh, the, the other thing that Keithon often does is uh, he will bring up a rule change, for instance, right? He will <laughs> say like... Uh, and then uh, they brought in skill checks or whatever. And then he just immediately in the text goes, well, and clearly all of the bad things that come from skill checks are. And then he'll list off every possible, like, it's not, they're not all like logical extreme sort of things, but it's a, it's a lot of like, well, and if you use skill checks, then nobody's going to talk to each other at the table anymore. And they're just going to say, I roll perception. And that's what everybody's going to do. Um, yes. And so there's a lot of like, here's the thing that I am saying the OSR folks were frustrated about in the rule set. And the argument that I'm going to provide for like, this is why it matters to the OSR, oftentimes to me tends to take the like worst possible reading of yes. a rule set or a mechanic change or a piece of guidance or whatever. Um, and occasionally Keith will then say the positive thing, right? He'll be like, but obviously skill checks can be useful for X, Y, Z, but like they're in footnotes or sometimes yeah. <laughs> multiple paragraphs later as an aside where it's like, well, and of course you could use skill checks and they might be helpful for X, but, and like, it's just a, like, I guess the way I'm thinking of this first section now is, uh, mid, mid us doing this first section of this podcast is me going, Hey, are you interested in reading these posts? Here's some things to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because uh, if you're a reader like me, you like are, will get tripped up on that, which I did uh, on my first reading. Every time he brought something up and then was like, well, and obviously all of the bad version, like all of the bad reactions to this are the things that would happen. And it, they were the only things happening and old school people. And I was just like, okay, whoa, I've lost the point of what where we started. <laughs> uh, and where we started is... A, a thing that I do understand, which is like in part one, for instance, like cha- changing to box text and having like specific, more narrative focused stuff is definitely a change from older modules for some folks, possibly. Uh, and like, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Uh, I just wish maybe the other stuff <laughs> was either shunted aside or et cetera. Yeah. I mean, so I-, I think another thing that probably should have said earlier, but I didn't think to say until just now is like, um, we talk about how he talks about the shift away from old school play. He does not, he kind of slowly introduces what he means by old school play in bits and pieces over the course of these four, the course of these four, uh, posts. But this does not start with like, here is old school play. He, no. he does not start with a definition here. He starts with, uh, the thing you, you read from where he, you know, refers to this as a lengthy historical analyst and calls himself a historian by trade. Uh, And then the first section is the decline of the old school. Um, And he just sort of like glosses over the first, I don't know, um, four, five years 
of of D and D to start getting into the the sort of the modules and the adventures that uh, that take uh, turns away from from old school play, which is again undefined, which is uh, a, a way to structure <laughs> the thing. Um, but if if we have not defined uh, old school play, it's because uh, there is no real concise definition of of old school play here. Um, and I think that's a thing that we talked about off uh, off the pod is one of the other things to keep in mind about this series, um, despite it being called a historical look at the OSR and starting with a um, him trying to sort of fill a gap in, you know, looking at the history of the OSR rather than just sort of like writing another manifesto or whatever, um, is to keep in mind that... Um, this is for people in the OSR. Uh, this is for people that that Keith Hahn talks to, I think, on blogs pretty regularly. Despite the appearance of it being a, like, bring it on in, y- y'all can learn what we've been up to. And I think <laughs> remembering that helps me with some of my frustrations about this. Is like, okay, I'm not the target audience here. The target audience here is, like, presumes people who are actively playing modules for AD&D or whatever. Um, and then it is just like, here's here's an argument for how we got to where we are. Yeah. Does that make sense? It do- yeah. No, it does. <laughs> uh, it does. And I mean, I think just like, because I am the person I am and my brain works the way it does, I think it's a, I th- I think it's a good thing to call out. I, I also think like, this is one of the things I'm just always going to struggle with when I'm reading writing. It doesn't really matter the context. Like, it's just really important to me that an author is being honest with sort of themselves and their audience about what the project is. Um, yeah. Especially if it's something like this, right? Where it's, you know, uh, we're talking about the four posts, but with the fifth post, it is longer than the game Troika in terms of word count. Yeah. And like, uh, if I'm going to, if I'm going to spend that time, like, I don't know, it's just, it makes makes sense to me and it matters to me personally that like i have a sense that the author is kind of like being honest about sort of what the pro what the project is <laughs> uh, <laughs> essentially um but yeah um um should we i feel like we should jump back to the skills thing because that's the big that's i feel like one of the one of the main arguments here well Does that makes sense the so the, have- the other thing i was thinking we could do is the one other piece of sort of broad observation of all of this that i think is similar to what you just said which is like uh like helping like for you it was really important to sort of keep in mind sort of where who this was written for and what the context was etc for me a big thing that i struggled with on my first reading was a reminder of like the material realities of playing D D <laughs> in like the sure. the early sort of world of D D. And specifically mm-hmm. because on my first read, I didn't really understand the import of like the litig the litigation of TSR and like the the <laughs> like lack of availability in the marketplace uh, for specific things, which is, you know, again, we could go into a lot of conversation about like uh zine culture was a was a huge part of this world during Mm -hmm. these times and so like part of me is a little skeptical of claims of like things not being like you just can't get your hands on them just because i would imagine people were making photocopies but when you combine that with for instance the famously uh litigious tsr that 
this is, I think, important context, and I'm saying this to me myself right now as well, <laughs> right? Which is, this is also important context, which is when when we're not just talking about just a hobbyist thing, right? We are talking about a yes. way of playing a game that is run by a company and that is owned by a company and that is IP and that, like, there's now, like, all of those legal structures in place around it. Yeah. Keeping that in mind did really help me quite a bit. Just be like, okay, okay, this is genuinely, like, this would be an incredibly frustrating experience, right? Like, at the end of the day, I'm probably still going to come down on, like, I don't understand why it became, like, a whole movement based on essentially a change in, like, a product line. But (laughs) I, I also do understand, like, if this is a thing that is important to you, this style of play, and the source that you have for it is just the company, and they're also keeping it on lockdown, that started to help me understand, again, even if I disagree with some of their readings of some of the box text or some of the rules changes, right? Like, that is a real... Like that is a that is a real and frustrating position to be in. To be like, I have a hobby. It's important to me. It's like part of my social life. And the company that was supporting it is now moving in a direction that I don't feel sort of supported by. Right. And ostensibly it's hard to yeah. get your hands on the materials by which you can just keep doing that. And, and like this is one of those cases where like I would never try to advance a hard argument around like I wasn't there, right? So like, yeah. if, if if somebody is like, listen, really and truly, you could not get your hands on these things. You couldn't even get your hands on AD and D one rules at some point. Then like, sure, yeah, that's super frustrating, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. That just felt like really good context to give before we talk through the rest of this, because like, the first time I read through this, there was a part of me that was like, you're, but the. They just added more stuff and like you could just keep playing the original one, right? And like there's a part of me that still sort of feels that way kind of a little, but like I'm much more sympathetic to the idea of like, but we can't play the old stuff actually (laughs) because we can't get it. And like if my friend tries to uh, copy it and somehow TSR found out that my game shop had Xerox copies, like they could threatened to sue you know like you can just right. see how it goes um so i just i wanted to do that before we go into any of sort of the specific rules or anything yeah i think those are all i think that that sort of covers for me at least like the the stuff i needed to keep in mind um when reading through this because i yeah like you said you i you had a had an immediate negative reaction i think i grew more negative on it over time sorry weirdly. About that. Yeah, sorry. um it's only partially your fault <laughs> um but like yeah I, I think talking through it in this way i think is a you know set set you up for for success if you if you decide to go in and read this and like you know maybe also you know you don't have to go out and buy an academic book uh john peterson's been blogging for a very long time mm-hmm. uh, while i was while i was doing some uh some last minute research just this morning before we started calling i like saw a um uh a footnote that linked to peterson's uh blog on the first post here and i went over there and then i accidentally spent like 20 minutes just reading the peterson post because like damn this man this man knows how to write a history (laughs) um And yeah, that's uh, that's also fun. Um, so you know, check out John Peterson's blog maybe as well if you're interested in um, specifically the history of D and D. Yeah, um, which is a lot of a lot of what he talks about. 
So, um, so my yeah. my last thing I was going to maybe suggest we talk about before we go to skill checks is just it's the it's the last thing from part one that I thought we're talking about, which is it is the point it is the only point in this first post in with Keith, in which Keith does sort of kind of try to define what this old school play style is. And mostly because it, uh, I thought it would be worth talking about because it brings up two things that I think are interesting, which are claims he makes about sort of what old school people prefer. <laughs> so I'm going to read. This is from part one, uh, the a historical look at the OSR part one post. So overall, the official style in this period emphasizes player agency. Barring the immediate circumstances of their surroundings, the attitudes and approaches to the test at hand were largely the player's own. Equally, the environment was generally not adjusted on the fly to better accommodate them or the perceived, quote, needs of the story, i.e., with the exception of random encounters, an encounter occurred when it occurred, as laid out beforehand. Events might change based on the actions of the party, e.g. they sounded an alarm, but they weren't shifted about to better meet the current HP of the party or towards some perceived sense of the dramatic. And and I feel like that's kind of the, the closest he gets to a concise statement of, like, this is what old school playing is. It's yeah, I think that's right. Like he- heavily emphasized uh, uh, player agency. Uh, players should be able to sort of do whatever they kind of want in the world. Um, b- but with a combination that also the environment is sort of static and very occasionally might respond to them. But for the most part, the environment shouldn't really react to the players. The environment should sort of have its own timeline, essentially. Yes. Uh, which sounds a lot like a West Marches campaign. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, it's, I mean, this brings up two things, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's West Marches, um, which we talked about. Was that episode 3.2? 3.1? Sure. Um, yeah, 3.1. Yeah, 3.1. Because, yeah, 3.2 just came out uh, as of this recording, and that's Aegon, right? So Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, so just as a, as a refresher, West Marches is a style of third edition specifically campaign that Ben Robbins wrote about some years after he, um, he did it, where he got together like a large pool of players and had a static map that he would like, he would update when people went to places, but like otherwise like was, uh, sort of all hex gridded, hex keyed out. Um, and players would have to sort of like just choose somewhere on the map get a party together and go there um, sort of uh, at their own will. Um, and and Robbins specifically in there talks very eloquently about the way that um, the GM should, should, should engage with players. Do you, do you want to take that BW? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the example that he gave in one of those posts that I loved was the example of the dire wolf. Right. Yes. Where, uh, where I think what Ben Robbins says is like, you should you should be GMing a West Marches campaign such that your players don't think of the dire wolf, like don't think of you, the GM, as a- having attacked them, but they li- they actually think that the dire wolf was attacking, um, yes. such that you are sort of reacting to the attack yourself, almost as a player. Meaning you're rolling the dice and you don't know what the number is, right? So like, yeah. this isn't some grand plan you have you are also seeing how the world plays out. Yes. Uh, it's, it's great. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing that this, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the environment was not adjusted on the fly thing from, uh, from the simulacrum post is like, it makes sense why he's talking about modules so much, huh? <laughs> In adventures. Oh yeah. I mean, th- this, uh, like the other thing that was Aegon, right. Thinking about Aegon, right. Like yeah. an Island in Aegon is, is, uh, I'm sure that, 
I'm sure old school people would be mad at me for saying this, but uh, but the <laughs> island on Aegon seems like a very a very old school influenced approach, right? Which is you you kind of set up a bunch of a bunch of stuff in advance, and it's mostly about linking things together as opposed to trying to like quote unquote tell a story exactly, right? And and in fact, in Aegon, one of the pieces of GM advice is don't try and tell a story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, so like, which is interesting. It, it is, and, and I the reason I wanted to hit this is and I'm like I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad we went here because like I I was thinking about Aegon. I was thinking about Troika. Actually, I was thinking about West Marches, mm-hmm. and uh, was really struck by how like it, it's very interesting to me that we're we read this now because like our conversation about West Marches and Aegon would have been so different if we had read this before right yeah and like i don't know that it would have been better or worse or any like it just would have been so different and so i wanted to bring this up because i also think we we just spent the first part mostly being like (laughs) about this about these posts in some ways right but like i actually this is not a complete definition of what old school play is and i have a lot of questions about what player agency means here right but like this is a very like this was very helpful to me because it also helped tie tie this to other things I understood, right? Which is what I wanted out of these posts, which is help me help me orient the things we've touched on that I know are sort of OSR adjacent, but I don't really understand what that means. So Yeah. Yeah. And now we have a better idea. Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. Um and I will say, um I, I think I mentioned this but not on a recording, but like I think I mentioned literally in the first recording, maybe maybe one point two um that i had prepared like or maybe even 1.1 that i that i knew what we're going to do next and it was this i've been holding on to this since we've been recording this show amazing and i even though i hadn't read it in full until you know this last couple weeks and to your point uh i think if we had done this as as 2.1 we would have had very different conversations about like you said like troika um, especially um, Aegon, uh, West Marches, especially. Mm-hmm. I think we would also have had a, this, I suspect, without some of those backstops to make some of this more interesting to both of us. Oh. We might have been really mean about this. Oh, 100%. I'm glad we're reading this now and not then. Uh, absolutely, 100%. Uh, um, but yeah, just a, a little behind the scenes there for everyone. Yeah. Uh, well, so to jump back to the thing you brought up earlier, I, I think actually, I think you're right, which is like, I think talking through the skill systems, which was part of part the part two post is probably like the biggest, meatiest kind of example of here's a rule change. This is sort of what we think it leads to as old school players and why we disagree with it. Yes. Um, I, I, so it's partially because I've heard other people in OSR sort of talk about this as an inflection point, but I think... I think if if we were to talk, I think we could talk about this and encompass basically the entire argument. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and so, I can I just uh, can I just pull this uh, quote that I that I pulled? No, this okay. time I'm going to say no. Actually, okay. Improvise, B. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please read your quote. <laughs> um, so he claims. Uh, I clicked away from it because he said no. And uh, okay, I'm back. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, skills also almost inevitably shift the play style to what one might call button-based gameplay. Players no longer feel the need to describe what they're doing because the relevant skill check, or its kissing cousin, the attribute check, allows a shortcut. 
This is dense, um, and we've kind of already touched on it, right? This is an example of uh, of Han basically saying, God, how do you even start tackling this? What do you think? Well, why don't we start with a simpler question? <laughs> what are skills? What is a skill check? Uh, a skill check is a thing where it says, where the book says, uh, roll this kind of die uh, using this skill to resolve this action. So this is the classic, you have a two in sneak, and so you roll a d20, whatever you get, you add two to it, and that's your sneak score on a skill check. Exactly, yes. And so the, the argument here uh, is... Uh, so the section is literally called the decline of the old school dash skill systems. And yeah, I mean, the, the big claim is, is what you read, which is skills almost inevitably shift the play style to one, what one might call button based gameplay. Um, and then talks about sort of player behavior and how that affects the skills. Um, and so I think the thing you were going to start on is uh, the rhetorical move, which he does. Am I correct on that? Is that what you were sort of starting on? Um, I was, I, th- I think I was going to actually start with, they inevitably shift the playstyle. Is that what you mean by the rhetorical mm-hmm. move? Yeah. So before this, I, it's, it happens a couple times, but, um, this is, this is what I meant earlier when I said bad in re, uh, ways he couches things. Um, he has, he has claimed already a couple times up to this point, uh, that, um, you have to look at the effects of rules, not the rules themselves, which I think is an int- is it generally a good claim. Um, yeah, but one that I think he twists here in a, in a way that kind of sucks. Yeah, the, I mean the the like uh, animating question, according to Han at the beginning of the second post, is what sort of gameplay does this rule actually create? As sort of the motivating yeah. question for looking at mechanics, that is a question. I am. I love that question. Fundamentally interested in in a deep and sort of like obsessive way, right? We started a podcast to literally talk about that, <laughs> right? Like, yes, that is absolutely that is what I'm interested in. Is like, uh, what does this me- mechanism in this system do, and what do these mechanisms together d- do, sort of two player behavior, right? Yeah, How do what they affordances they? Yep. Yeah, what what affordances, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Uh, so like, that's a. Gr- I was like very excited. I was like, oh, this is a great question. But as you said, he sort of he sort of ends up kind of twisting it. And specifically, the way I put it in my notes is like he 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 very regularly in these posts ascribes a, a very strong sort of like yes teleological power to uh, mechanisms, but specifically in the negative valence. So like yes. Uh, the, I mean, just to read it again, skills also almost inevitably shift the play style to one might one what one might call button based gameplay. Um, that's a that's very objective and uh, not judgmental at all. It's a, um. it's like a really big claim, right? It's it's basically uh-huh. being like huge. You put skills in, and suddenly people aren't going to talk to each other at the table. Specifically because he says this, I think, explicitly in this post, because players are lazy. Like, players are lazy, and so if you give them a mechanism that doesn't force them to, for instance, haggle over whether they can do a stealth check or how they do a stealth check with the GM, uh, if you give them an easier way, they will only take the easier way, and it will make the play worse. Like, that—that that is just, the uh, claim. 
I just control f it. And he doesn't just say lazy. He says, people are naturally lazy. Yeah, there's some uh, there's some ideology here. Um, <laughs> oh, baby. We are not getting into it. <laughs> no. But, but I, I, so, like, I think th- this is... The the reason why this is a place to start is sort of similar to where what we were saying earlier in my mind, right? Which is like, I think that there's a very coherent case here to be made, which is if what you like about playing Dungeons and Dragons is specifically that sort of negotiation where you have a crazy idea and you're like, I want to do this wild thing. And you basically in sort of first edition, right, you would need to like, go and talk to the GM and be like, I want to do this thing. And then you'd kind of need to figure out like, is it possible? Does that make sense? What would we roll for it? And so if you, if your sort of game moves to a system that takes that away or like gives a different option, that's easier. I mm-hmm. I can understand why you're like, well, that's frustrating because like this gets like, this is taking away something that we feel like is important. Right. But also I don't even I don't know that you need to make the absolutely strongest possible version of the claim (laughs) (laughs) that these are negative skills to make that argument. Right. Like to me, it would be enough to be like, this is why we be this is why OSR started to exist was just we wanted to make sure that like we were continuing to expand on the rule set or like the ideas of like this being the way we role play. But that's definitely not the way this argument unfolds. <laughs> it's a much no, stronger uh, claim, right? No, yeah, it leads to... Well, and then after the claim of naturally lazy, there's a footnote where he's like, and well, these... Th- this is to your earlier point also, right? There's a footnote where he's like, well, and you know, there are some arguments that, like, not having to negotiate every single thing might actually be useful or whatever. Period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, end of footnote. <laughs> um, and it's just like... It is exactly what you said, right? It's like him being like, here's... <laughs> this is the thing he does over and over. Here's a claim. Here's the strongest possible argument for why that claim teleologically is... is, is or has a has a teleology to it. That teleology is negative, and it, it is disruptive of the old school. Anyway, I'm not biased toward the old school. So here's a footnote where I kind of make vague overtures toward how you might otherwise interpret this without um, without undermining my own point anyway. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of... Um... <laughs> There's a lot of system does matter feelings to this, these posts of like uh-huh. uh, the thing I said a lot in that first episode, right? Was like, uh, there's just, there are a lot of points where I'll be like, oh, internet. Oh God, that's where you took that. Okay. Uh-huh. In system does matter. <laughs> and usually in system does matter. It was that fast because it's just so much shorter. Right. But yeah, like the, so like, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little, right. But like the, yeah. the big thing in, in part two, right. Is specifically around sort of like skill systems and like how how do you do things in in the game like in play and then part three is specifically about a change in second edition around um combat being able to give xp in addition to like gold giving xp which in old school play the way you got xp was loot and gold right and we could talk more this about is, the very yeah. specific things here, but in both of them, he, he does the exact same move, which is he says, yes. here's a thing that was like a change that was being made to Dungeons and Dragons and the, the rule sets and all of the books that came with it. And it was something that sort of contradicts old school play. And like, I just, as a person, struggle with why then 
people want to move that next step to then go. And because that new thing exists, that's that's actually bad. <laughs> like, it's bad that I want to play this game in one way and these other ways now exist. And the reason I'm saying this is because, like, again, keeping in mind some of the sort of material realities and, like, the sort of production and, right, like, how things got distributed and TSR being litigious, et cetera, totally understand that. But, like... The gold change, for instance, was literally just that it was an option. It wasn't that gold for XP was the only option. It was now that there were like eight different ways that XP could be handed out. And, yes. And so there's there's just like a fundamental mismatch here of like in terms of how some people argue or how people view, view the world, I think. But like that is the thing that I, def I definitely just kept running into of like I absolutely understand the claim that skills and skill checks would change play and could change play and might change a lot of tables away from the negotiation. But couldn't you then just continue playing with the negotiation at the table that you're playing at? This is like, um, it's, it's the like turning it into sort of a system and a movement of like, and like not system in terms of like an RPG, right? But turn them into like a systematic critique, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Is the move where and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, so this is why I think your use of the word teleo or telos or teleological here is, is, is very important to me, right? Um, and we should probably define that. Um, oh, yeah. Which is Sorry. To say, um, at least my understanding, I haven't, I haven't looked at a definition of teleological in a long time, but um, my understanding is that it is... Um, an end contained within the thing is 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 how I remember it being taught to me. Yeah. Um, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good sort of simple definition of like the uh, the thing is working towards an end and that end is sort of defined within the thing, right? Um, yeah. So it's a conclusion that is a a, a preordained conclusion in some way, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that is that is what we are sort of critiquing here with his. Um, with his arguments specifically around gold as XP and making that optional and skill systems necessarily um, sort of obviating sociality yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a social game yeah. um, uh, is, is to say he sees those things as necessarily leading to in their, um, in their very design, in their very pure creation uh, outcomes, yeah. which are, oppositional to old school play um which again is fundamentally not what he promises to do at the top of this yeah no, correct um, uh is what sort of gameplay does this rule actually create is the question he asks and then he says this is the this is the type of gameplay that this rule must create um and this is where i think it's like this yeah. is just there's like a, just a formal difference in terms of how i think about knowledge and knowledge production and knowledge creation right which is like i'm just much more interested in that first question which is yeah what that's a better question what types of behavior do rules create <laughs> that's an interesting question i, I would rather than have a, a very long post that describes lots of different play styles that could come out of that right um, uh -huh. because then that's productive and generative and that gives me more to talk through and think about, right? And go like, oh, interesting. Yeah, there's like four or five different, blah, blah, blah. You, you could read the two chapters culture or two cultures chapter of John Peterson's uh, yeah. The Shift, for instance. 100%. <laughs> um, um, sorry, I'm getting back into frustrated mode. I apologize. No, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, but like I, it, in some ways, like the... 
so there's there, talking through this has in some ways made me I think somehow more positive on this just in that like you're draining the joy out of me I think I am <laughs> um, but like I, again I don't think that I think that these are I think that these are suspect history right because like yeah. it is clearly not doing the thing it's claiming at the beginning. <laughs> it is advancing v- very strong arguments uh, around sort of how mechanisms work and how they affect people and play at a table. But it does give me a pretty good sense of, like, the thing that I didn't have at the beginning, right? Which is, what does an OSR or a person who's interested in OSR, like, what are the big, broad, general things they're interested in? And I actually yes. think I have that coming out of this. I, yeah. I have a lot of questions about specific language, but like, I understand the idea of a dungeon delve, and I understand the idea of like, we're not heroes, we're sort of like, kind of sort of more regular folks who just like are adventurers and want to go and gather things and gather loot and explore, right? And they're really into not role play, but like the negotiation and like the strategizing, yes. right? Yes. Um, And... They aren't interested in, like, a story aside from the things that they do with their characters that sort of naturally lead to a story, right? So they aren't interested in chasing down a big bad necessarily. They're just interested in going to the next cave, right? Um, yep. And that's very helpful. I I don't know that that person really and truly exists, which is one of the things <laughs> that I also struggle with with some of these with some of these posts where I'm like, I just am not convinced that the picture you have drawn is a person. I think that, uh, like, maybe there's some people who believe this stuff, but I just feel like it's going to always be a shifting series of things that people are interested in in this big soup of old school stuff, right? Um, yeah. Um, to my mind, we that kind of covers parts two and three. Yeah, I mean, like, basically parts two and three, the the two big claims are the things we've already mentioned, which are, and I think we've said yeah. them, are like, so skill checks, and the, the other part is universal resolution mechanics, which is basically the same thing, yeah. right? Which is, totally. you, you have a named skill for a thing, and you do, you can use that skill to accomplish a goal. And there, there's a sort of interesting argument in there that, I'll be honest, just got a little crunchy for me around like math, Um and like what changes to attributes might do to people. I think that's in this post. And like there's there's a section, I think it's in here about assumed competence, or is that in part three? I'm not sure. Um That's part two. It is part two. Um because he talks about like one of the earliest skill checks is like a, an offhand thing in some module where he's like where you can there's like a rug or a or some sort of thing that you can get an extra ec- x amount of experience for if you have like a, the religion skill is that the thing you're, you're thinking of? yeah i i believe so um uh, maybe that's in part three it is part four. It, it is in part three but it i think but maybe i'm wrong maybe it's in part four but the the basic idea is just uh in the more open old school D you didn't have a skill for every single thing and so you weren't gated right and so yes once you have skill checks for uh and like really specific like big lists of skills, you can end up in a position where it, like the example you just gave, uh, I think the way he says it is like role to play. Right. And like, sure. I just agree that that is actually like, I, that just personally is like not a thing I find interesting. Right. Um, there's a very specific moment in early friends at the table that still annoys me because it was one of these <laughs> kinds of things where I was like, 
okay, but that was a single check. And this is like the third session of this game that nobody knows how to play. Like, wait, what? No, that's, that was a cool thing. And you just like railroaded them away. Um, so like, oh, I don't remember what you're talking about. Uh, it's just, it's the big door in early Hyron where there's a big door. That oh, would have revealed, sure. Like, uh, anyway, sure. this stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I guess I won't spoil early friends uh, at the table ben, for people. <laughs> um, ben, bend bars or whatever is the move, I think. Yeah, I think like so. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, like I think that that that's basically his point. That is part two. Is like when you provide people these very specific pieces of information, it it means inevitably, and this is where like that very strong Telos claim comes. Like it it means that people will then no longer ever want to sort of haggle through or think through those things. And then on top of that, there's this idea of sort of like, well, in an earlier version of D and D, I could have just like removed that rug by saying I removed the rug as opposed to needing to have rolled a perception check to be able to tell that there was a, th- you know, like, and I, I get, yeah. I get that. I get that. Like that is a change in mechanics that I could see changing some tables. Mm-hmm. Like that's just as far as I can take that. And then part three is essentially just running through this, a similar thing, but with a couple of but options. Specifically about right? AD&D. Yeah, yeah. Specifically about AD&D too. and specifically like the gold for XP change and some of the like flavor and guidance around uh, in, in second edition, how they handle GM stuff. I don't have a lot to say about that GM stuff one, but the, the gold one we've talked through, I think. And basically it's the same argument, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. He sort of presents it. Again, makes a pretty compelling like, oh, yeah, I could see how you might you might be like, oh, well, this is weird. Like now we have different ways of getting XP that could change how we play. And maybe that moves us away from what we like. Right. And again, I even understand combining the skill check with the gold for XP thing. Like I can understand mm-hmm. how they would work together in ways that would not support old school play. Um. But yeah, I, that's like, again, he just, he then makes those interesting points and then makes the very, 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 very strong claims after. Um, right. And and maybe to like, um, to, to speak to my own uh, history as a, as a person who's played a lot of D&D, um, this is one of the reasons the teleo- teleological sort of aspect of this is, is very personally annoying, right? Um, because I have the, the, I have a different experience here. I have... I have uh, run so many games, and I didn't start till third edition. I played a lot of third edition, and I played a lot of fourth edition. One of one of a, a very clear, I think, uh, <laughs> one one very clear possible end of having a universal, um, you know, way of resolving things, and then a billion skills is you fucking ignore the skills. <laughs> Because there's too many of them and no one knows all of them and what they all do. I mean, Uh, yeah, yes, uh huh. That is also that is always an option. Uh, That is an inherent option within the format, right? Uh, And so to say that, like, because there are a hundred skills, that no one can do anything related to a skill that they don't have uh, in practice, no. Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I think that becomes more of an issue once you get into things like Powered by the Apocalypse, where the the list of moves is so tight that you kind of don't want to impinge upon other people, right? Like, where uh, if, you know, if a 
game has a skill to hack, like a character who's a hacker, you don't want to let everyone just go ahead and hack things in the same way that like in D&D, if you don't have skill in like nature or whatever, you still, I, and you ask me, can I do a nature check? I'll be like, sure. You'll just roll the flat D20. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, th- I think this is like, this is a really yeah. big, <laughs> again, overarching thing that I just yes. find confusing. Right. Which is one of the, yeah. one of the things that an old school person would, would praise original D and D for is how open it is and how incomplete it is and how that those gaps are like good and help you know produce interesting play right and you have mm-hmm. to like th- it doesn't have all of the answers for you um i i just sometimes i guess while reading this was struggling to understand why you have that as like a core principle of what you think is important in role playing but then if a rule is in the book it suddenly is like law yes is really weird cuz like there's like Baffling. a specific thing where he mentions like people really wanted to go back to like freewheeling with the rules just like you used to in old school and it's like well but so then you can yeah just keep being done it. just keep being freewheeling even with second edition right i i played a year campaign of fourth edition where i didn't give out experience mm-hmm. you can do anything you fucking want to it's true world your oyster <laughs> um yeah it's a social situation <laughs> it is and, and again this is like uh, it's just, you know, different way of viewing the world, I think, and different way of viewing sort of like the, like, I understand, I am a person who uh, does not like not following rules, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I just, it's just who, it's just who I am. I, I like to do things and I don't like to, like, I like to do things that are according to the rules. Now that said, my, my politics mean that I think a lot of rules are stupid. <laughs> um <laughs> in uh, society right but like that's just like uh, that is my if i'm going to read a system i I am going to want to follow the mechanisms in the system because i think that's interesting and i'm interested in seeing how they play together right if what you're interested is in in is freewheeling hack and slash old school D &D play then like you can do it you You can yeah you can just you can just do it guys um just do it (laughs) and, and so this is where we're going back to the sort of the the kind of market stuff right where it's like i I do just kind of still go come back to like the the thing that early old school folks were mad about right was essentially that a new version of their game existed and Mm -hmm. they wanted more modules and like that's that's kind of what it boils down to in like a very real way and like i get it that it in the context of that world there were probably a lot of people who just assumed you needed modules to like have new places to play or whatever. Or people who just liked running modules. Yeah, right? 100%. Like, that's yeah. also legit. Absolutely. Like, yeah, I yeah. Couldn't be me, but like, you know, that's it, clearly the market holds up that, that, you know, TSR sold a fuck ton of modules yeah. up through like 85. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I was looking at it, I think they were doing like 22 million in sales in, in, in 1985. Christ, really? <laughs> yeah. Cause that, I mean, it's, it, that is, I think that was their uh, their peak oh, okay. uh, for a very long time, up until like fifth edition. But like, you know, that is that is satanic panic. Like, oh, yeah, interesting. H- hits the yeah. you know yeah. hits the mainstream. So they're still in game stores at that point, but not. Uh, but ev- and now everyone knows what it is. Right before they get pulled out of game stores, because uh, yeah, because that would be. I mean, that would be. I was probably reading. 
I, I, dear listener, I grew up very religious. <laughs> I was reading Satanic Panic novels, like Christian novels, probably when I was like 12 or 13. So that would have been like very early 90s. Um, yeah. And so Satanic, the point being Satanic Panic had grown to the, the part where in the Christian media world, like that ecosystem, there were multiple authors who were known as primary primarily people who wrote weird satanic panic novels that were just pure fiction, like just pure creativity, having no basis in what actual Satanism is or anything. Um, Uh But they were very popular. My dad loved them. Uh (laughs) But, uh, Um, but yeah, should we, should we jump to the 2000s? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah, (laughs) that's kind of where, what I was going to say is like, basically what we have talked about is kind of, we've gotten through second edition for AD and D, right? Um, yeah. And then it's and then it's the the part four, which I'll let you kind of talk through what that post is. Yeah, um, it's there's interesting stuff in here. Um, going back and rereading it, I was like, uh, maybe it's less interesting than I thought it was <laughs> the first time I read through. Um, but to 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 sort of give the long and short of it, this is um, Han's sort of argument about where like the actual OSR. Um, so we're, we're out of D and D and now we're into the, the foundation of the OSR. And like the high level is basically in the early two thousands. There's, well, first there's the OGL released with the third edition, uh, the open gaming license that we've talked about before. Um, and he puts a lot of, um, a lot of this on to the OGL, interestingly, but so following third edition, there's a handful of forums that appear, and they and people start talking about uh, wanting to play old style, old school style games again. Um, I think he pinpoints the like one of the earliest uses of uh, OSR specifically uh, to 2005 on one of these forums, and then he sort of picks out four games that uh, sort of launch OSR as a as a as a design movement, as, as he would say, or a market segment, as I would say. Yeah. Um, this is basic fantasy role-playing. Osric, the old-school reference and index compendium. Um, Labyrinth Lord and Swords and Wizardry. Uh, those are all between 2006 and 2008. They sort of lay the foundations for what he and a lot of the community calls retro clones, which is to say uh, they basically rewrite some edition of pre- Second edition AD and D Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. Um, meaning either original Dungeons and Dragons, um, AD and D one, the uh, basic slash expert Dungeons and Dragons, the the Beckme box. <laughs> um, the, we have sort of skipped over the fact that there were like six or seven different editions of variations on Dungeons and Dragons between the original and and second edition AD and D, um, because uh, go look at the timeline. It's it's much easier to understand that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and it's worth saying that, that it, again is like some of the stuff that I found kind of useful here is just a person who was not, I mean, I was a child. I was a very small child. Um, yeah. During uh, like the very early parts of this, but uh, you know, even early, early aughts, I was, I was in college, but I wasn't, this was, I was not this type of nerd at that point. Um, right. So some of that stuff was just interesting. And this, this post was probably the most interesting to me just in terms of timeline of like, I had seen some of these names before, but like just putting them all together, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Totally. Uh, yes. Huh. And it's, I think that's what it's, I think this one stands alone in many ways. Yeah. I think the first and the fourth one, you could just read those two and get probably a lot of, a lot of what you get out of, or a lot of what I got out of these. 
uh, this whole thing. But yeah, I agree. I, and like, honestly, like uh, Osiric is like one of these things that is just very pleasing to me as a person. Like, it's just pleasing to me that it exists. Uh, <laughs> like Osiric two, version 2.0 was a complete rule system. 402 pages. Uh-huh. Uh, to the originals, 132 pages. Uh, yeah. And like, I don't know, it's just the like the entire story of like Osric kind of coming to to be and like how it came to be. And like one of the designers was a lawyer because he (laughs) he wanted to make sure that they were like really like sticking true to the OGL and not uh, taking any chances. Right. He's like hitting the exact line. Yeah. Is, is sort of the idea. Like, um, how yeah. how much can we replicate old school D D without getting in trouble? Uh, and essentially, yeah, that's what Osirik was meant to be. Which is just like that's just like fun. That's like a fun little story uh, for sure. And and he mostly avoids a lot of like the big claim stuff in this one, from what my memory. This is this is truly some of the historical analysis of like just. Let's let's put things in order and talk a little bit about the people and the players and some of the relationships between those things. And there's enough in that to, like, if you want to, sort of extrapolate things, yeah. right? Because, like, one of the things this allows you to think about, right, is he's been talking about modules a bunch to this point. But then when he sort of talks about the inauguration of the OSR, he talks about these, like, larger systems that sort of recreate as down to uh, a, a p- pretty granular level the sort of rule sets of AD&D within the framework of Dungeons and Dragons 3rd edition because that's where the OGL comes into play. What he doesn't talk about is a ton of modules and we we know, I think, fairly obviously that the people have been writing just like straight up probably free PDFs of adventures for you know AD&D this whole time would be my guess, right? Yeah. And so it's it's interesting to to think about like he he focuses on these sort of bigger tentpole, you know, hard covers that go in stores as the sort of origin of the OSR um for I think good reasons because part of the OSR like I said it's not just a it's not just a de- design movement it it is um much like the forge was for the indie tabletop role playing games of the 2000s um, it is it is an a- attempt to identify a market segment and and to like create that and to to sell product within it. Um, I, I think that is that is just extremely obviously true. Yeah, based on uh, you know what gets focused here, which is why I think like uh, th- this specific post feels the most true to the original claim, right? Which is like not arguing for any sort of theoretical approach. This is really like trying to basically say what were the steps involved in the thing that we now understand to be OSR? And I think it's very interesting, right? That like once, once there was some freedom, the thing that happened was people made a lot of games Mm -hmm. because to me, what that says is that actually the group of people who mostly just want modules for original D and D is maybe not that big of a group. And actually what people are interested in is a theoretical approach to role playing. And it's like, personally speaking, it's one I'm not super interested in. Right. But like, mm-hmm. uh, but like, I'm glad people do it. I, I earlier today, I was playing a, a board game, a solo board game that is like, I was playing it uh, and was basically like, oh, this is like an old school. D- like, I'm just literally moving between hexes and like, dr- like I'm, I'm. I'm just doing a dungeon crawl. Like I'm just, I'm just taking some hit points off people. There's no real narrative here. They should just play Gloomhaven, maybe. <laughs> like, 
Uh, I was not playing Gloomhaven. I was playing the prequel to Gloomhaven. Uh, Gloomhaven is terrifying. Um, <laughs> but like it, it truly, I was, I was just struck by like, there, I think there's probably just a lot of different ways you guys could get this play style. Uh, if it, like from up, like from old school D and D, but also from like board games with hex crawling, <laughs> like board games, perhaps. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, but th- anyway, point being, I was trying to say a positive thing here, right. Which is like, it, this really is the post where I was like, this is great. Like, this is truly just like filling in some gaps and helping me see where things go and like you said i can then start putting some pieces together and drawing interesting conclusions and figuring out where i might want to go further Uh, yeah i think that that covers it for us yeah should we can i click on your link can i click on your link (laughs) sure click on my link um so uh next next uh episode we're gonna we're gonna try reading two games again um oh shit it's a link to a folder it's a link to a folder Oh fuck yeah! And so uh, it's a it's it's a folder in our Google Drive. Uh, so we're going to be reading two things. Um, so first, we're going to be reading. Oh hell yeah! Oh yeah, I, I love this. Okay, yeah, I thought I thought you'd be pretty excited. Um, so we're going to be reading um, a solo tabletop RPG by Takuma Okada called Alone Among the Stars. Hop on over to uh, Island Demeter to hear me play that solo and me play that with Charmy. Exactly. In the two-player version. Uh, I, I I did not, when I was picking this, uh, think about the cross-promotion opportunities, but I did <laughs> think of it a little earlier today before we started recording. I was like, ooh, look at me. Um, I have I have actually played Alone Among the Stars probably a half dozen times I, at this point. Yeah, so... It's so good. So I am very excited. So Alone Among the Stars... So I know Takuma Okada. Um, I know Takuma Okada's work, but... Um, I've not played Alone Among the Stars, and I knew you had played Alone Among the Stars multiple times. And so mm-hmm. I thought that would be fun. Um, and I also thought it would be fun uh, just as like a fun, weird move to be like, hey, we just spent a bunch of time reading uh, a bunch of people talking about or one person talking about OSR and talking about table play and like how interactive they wanted it to be, et cetera. So why don't we read some solo stuff? <laughs> Um, <laughs> so we're going to read, we're going to read that. So, uh, I'm very excited, uh, about Alone Among the Stars. And then the other thing that we are going to read is a collection of sort of like mini games. Um, it is called Doskval Interstitials. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, it is, uh, subtitled 18 Invitations to Play. Uh, and it is by somebody that you know personally, and I think I've met once, um, yeah, Matthew R.F. Balashek. Yeah. Um, we have not interacted very much in the last few years, but yeah, um, Matthew was at at least one, maybe two playdates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Playdate pop-up was a uh, a pop-up that I co-founded and, and co-organized for about four years, where we would invite uh, indie games folks to showcase inside of the Los Angeles Zine Fest, where... Um, pre-pandemic, we were the Zine Fest would get about ten thousand ish people coming through over the course of a day. Wow, <laughs> often. Um, and we had, uh, you know, we had creators of, uh, you know, mostly video games, but I was I was always pushing for more tabletop representation. Um, and Matthew came through at least one year, brought a handful of games, had a had a lovely time chatting with him, um, and uh, just really enjoyed his his design and his presence yeah so so uh this is a cool little book um it's called duskfall interstitials because it 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 was sort of initially meant as 
basically 18 small games you can play in downtime moments uh, during a Blades in the Dark campaign. Oh, interesting. So I'm going to read a couple of like just the invitations, right? Which is like the table of contents, right? So the first one is just called The Festival. And it says, play this game only when you've come inside from the cold or darkness. The establishment is number five. Play this game only when you walk past a shop or restaurant and tell yourself that you'd like to check it out sometime. <laughs> and so it's 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 basically set into, uh, I think, three different sections. So there's occurrings, which are invitations to play in quotidian moments, intervenings, invitations to play instead, and, and then waitings, invitations to play in between. Um, they can be played. Some of them are solo. Some of them could be played with other people at the table, etc., but uh, I thought uh, the thing I wanted to do was I wanted to do some sort of more sort of solo focused stuff or like really small kind of quiet mm-hmm. focused uh, systems. And I also wanted to try and find a couple that were pretty different from each other in terms of how they approach solo mechanics, right? This this will likely be the episode where I talk more about solo board gaming, which is a thing I've been getting into over the last couple of months. Because I'm very I'm very interested in sort of how these uh, how these games sort of can encourage uh, play and specifically narrative play. I guess not specifically, but play and also narrative sort of focused play alone, uh, as opposed to a lot of the things that you rely on in other tabletop RPGs, like having other humans or a GM. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, so that's those are the two things we are going to read: Alone Among the Stars and Doskval Interstitials. Yeah, um, I'm, uh, you know, I don't think we've yet hit one where I'm not excited, but I'm extremely excited about these two, because, yeah, um, I actually, I, I kind of forgot about this, uh, but prior to, what was it, a week ago, uh, when we played a thing, maybe, um, the last game I had played was actually a, a Matthew R.F. Bellshit game, I can't remember... Uh, Squad Force Heroes. I, I played a, a quick game of that with with Ricky and Charmy a, a couple months ago, and was like, yeah. And and I will say, um, from my experience with with Matthew's games, um, they are often very sight based, or um, they have a, a, he has a very good sense for like um, a very simple mechanic that blows up into a weird thing. Um, I think the one I remember most from, from Playdate was we had a, like a circle of like 10 people and he had a, he was selling a game there that was all games based on rock, Mm, paper, mm -hmm. scissors. And it was sort of like, almost like a werewolf thing, but the way we started it was everyone put a hand behind their back and chose either rock, paper or scissors uh, and you just held Whoa. that there, <laughs> um, and then it was like a social sort of manipulation game. It was nice. it was very cool. Um, yeah, cool. hell yeah, great choice, hey, BW, as always. Okay, where can people find you on the internet? They can find me on Instagram at instagram.com slash bakery slash workshop. Bakery slash workshop, three words, all spelled out, all smushed together. What about you? I'm. At B Gabriel on Twitter. I'm not going to spell it because fuck them. Also, it'll be in the show. It'll be in the show notes. Mm-hmm.